one study did, they played Simon Says, which is actually a measure that looks at inhibitory control. So how, how well are you able to suppress uh, oh, an impulse? That's, that's a game that's not in Squid Game. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as kids get older, they get better at it. So I, you know, I included that as a, as a covariate, but still found out even with that involved, kids just had a harder time not imitating the character in VR than they did, you know, via television. And so there's something salient about that. Yeah, so there's something salient about that experience that's a little bit, a little bit different. Hello world, you're listening to SpartyCast. Hello, SpartyCast fans and friends and family who keep this thing afloat. Actually, our numbers are getting really good. We've been growing. This podcast is great. And so it's with a heavy heart that I have to announce that Tay Halterman is stepping down as our producer at the end of the semester. It makes me so sad. I'm putting this right at the front of the episode. So she'll feel really guilty. Just kidding. I'm super happy for her. She's starting her own podcast. We'll even advertise for it once it has a title. Um, And it's a great opportunity for her to engage in environmental journalism. Oh, this podcast wouldn't be possible without Tay and then her predecessor, George McNeil, also someone who worked in student radio here. It's been really auspicious to have students in the Communication Arts and Sciences College here who know how to make media help support this podcast. So though we say goodbye to Tay with a heavy heart, at the end of the semester, I hope she still edits and continues to work for the month. But um, but we're glad to have Kyle Takte and Mia Berghardt, who are going to not only help with the podcast in general and continue to put out these episodes, um, but make the podcast TikTok. And I think I think that's going to be a major focus in 2022, um, mainly because there are a lot of eyeballs there. And if TikTok can make Squid Game a global phenomenon, then maybe we can do slightly more for educating the world about VR and the Proteus effect and avatars through posting up there. So stay tuned for our our game plan, I guess. Um, but, but for now, we're going to keep these episodes rolling. This week, we have the very interesting expert on kids and virtual reality, Jackie Bailey. She's an assistant professor and director of the Immersive Human Development Lab at UT Austin. She tells me about her research relating to children's uses of virtual reality, including funny moments where kids say the darndest things in VR or or flail their arms toward virtual characters in ways that kind of transcend the normal boundaries uh, we stodgy old grown-ups might adhere to. Um, She also talks about concerns for safety and kids and in VR in general, or maybe in the future metaverse of um, educational environments. Though at the same time, I steered the conversation toward optimism. (laughs) I'm optimistic that if we can encourage kind of positive uses of these technologies and and mitigate the concerns, then we'll have a net benefit. So we did talk about how VR education could be more positive than negative in the future. 
or at least um, could be even better than the current education offerings of the day. Uh, she talks about the fundamental psychology behind how kids respond to VR, why that's so different than the ways that adults respond to VR, respond to not just the virtual environments, but also to the avatars in VR. And, um, and she's, she's not only a researcher like me, she thinks about design. She teaches a class called Designing User Interfaces for Children. Super interesting, right? And totally underappreciated, I believe, in my field. For perhaps the most pedantic reason you can think of, um, it's hard to get data from kids because we have to go through extra consent forms and a longer review process to make sure that we're protecting the safety of our participants. We go through something called IRB approval. That process is a little bit longer. You do need to get you know kids to the lab instead of um, college students who are readily available in the in the vicinity. Um, but but I hope. I hope that more research can focus on kids in these media contexts. It's such an important area. Uh, you future or current PhD students out there, please listen to this episode with an open ear to ways in which you might be able to direct your own research um, toward these topics. And for you industry uh, members, those of you who are designing technologies, the metaverse, the future of the interfaces that kids will engage with as well as adults, something like the metaverse will certainly have more serious uses. It's not just video games. It's so funny because video games are so stereotyped as being a child-oriented technology. Though, as we know, the average gamer age is, is like my age, right? Like late 30s, early 40s. Um, Certainly kids do play a lot of video games and that's been an important topic. Ironically though, also in video game research, it's been hard to get child participants. We need to think about how the psychology of these media uses influence or should influence the design. We need to be careful as we see in the kind of scrutiny of Facebook and its effects on teenage girls, particularly with respect to Instagram and social comparison. If you're going to blame Facebook, uh, which lots of people like to do, I like to say haters going to hate because uh, I think we can blame them, but more importantly, we can help guide them and the many other companies who are trying to make an influence here, guide them towards safer, healthier uses of these technologies. And so how do we do that? Um, I think the way is to focus on the research, focus on what Dr. Bailey is going to talk about in this episode and think carefully about the harms um, that you might do to children as well as the benefits. Like don't, just like researchers shouldn't shy away from working with kids because it's logistically more difficult. I hope designers don't just put up age walls around their technologies because they don't want kids to use them because there are huge potential benefits in education and health. Um, so, so please let's think about, think about the children and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Dr. Jackie Bailey from UT Austin, a friend and a colleague I've known for quite a long time. I think maybe since 2010 or so. Uh, when you when did you start your PhD? Uh, 20, 2011, close, pretty much there. 2011, you joined the Virtual Human Interaction Laboratory, Jeremy Balenson's lab. Mm -hmm. And did you know that you were going to study VR and kids at that early stage of your career? A little bit. There were inklings of it. I just knew that 
I was generally interested in kids and I, and when my undergrad, I was studying technology and I took a class related to, it's called communication and children. Don Roberts, I'll give him a little nod there. He's retired now, <laughs> but I really enjoyed that class. I thought it was so fascinating. I knew that was something I was always interested in and I definitely became a parent, you know, as I went through my uh, PhD program and I pivoted. I know that I remember Don Roberts did um, children and media research relating to like educational TV, PBS mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So you saw the parallel to kind of modern media technologies. Um, well, I was doing a lot of VR research and then I was fascinated by the fact that even with adults, we see that our minds just quickly adapt to VR experiences. We treat it as real, even if it's like, oh, it's, it's like a video game. It's fine. I know what it is, but you just have those automatic reactions. And I was thinking, wow, you know, I remember, you know, before when there's just public broadcasting television and they had kids shows, they always had to say, and now for a commercial break, it's because kids of a certain age had a hard time distinguishing the um, television content, the show itself from the commercial content. And so I was like, wow, VR is so immersive. It's so sensory, uh, has so much sensory experience to it. You know, when kids are still developing these skills to regulate themselves and their behaviors and their emotions, what is it going to be like if they're in this type of experience where it feels like they're in the content, they are part of the show now. Um, so that's how I just, it's just so fascinating. And so what have you discovered? Well, similar to adults that kids do quickly get immersed into it. Um, but I've gone through this very painstakingly step-by-step -step process because kids do have that tendency to, you know, shift attention really quickly or move their bodies really fast. On one hand, the tech, the, the hardware itself, you know, things really started off being wired. So I had kids literally spinning around in a circle because they were so excited. Um, or, you know, they try to break it, which I think is really fun and exciting. Uh, but then that can also lead to things like you have to watch out, make sure they don't, you know, run into things. They, you know, don't have so much movement that they end up feeling sick. You know, you want to regulate how much time they spend in there as well. I've, you know, I, I tend to keep kids in there for a short period of time, maybe like five or 10 minutes. And I've had kids literally say, I had one child literally say, I wish I could do this for forever. <laughs> so, you know, you don't, and you don't want to have a kid in there for forever. That's not wise. Um, so you just, you know, questions about, you know, it's all, it's like a treat for them also. So making sure yeah, you kind of keep, keep, you know, monitor that. So to the first point about kind of uh, the amount of presence they feel and, and the immersion, the awareness of the non-mediated space going away, mm -hmm. um, do you think... Is, is the danger higher for kids to fall over in VR than adults? Because adults are more likely to remember. I mean, certainly I've heard Jeremy uh, was giving an interview with Charlie Rose and talked about someone who tried to do a backflip because they thought they were actually flying in VR. Uh, and that was an adult. But are mm -hmm. kids more likely to do that, you think? I wouldn't be surprised. Again, um, particularly the younger ages. So there's this suite of skills that we have called executive function skills, and they're related to our abilities to regulate our emotions and our behaviors, and they mature over time. And so, you know, you start to get towards your early 20s, and that's where you sort of hit this, you know, maturation high point. At that time, you're still learning how to, like, not fidget, not to do an impulse, like, try, it's, you're still trying to learn how to resist temptation. And so, 
it, you know, kids really get into it. They, you know, flail all over the place. You know, in a recent um, study that we did, we just did some analysis of the videos that we have and some qualitative just to see what are kids spontaneously doing. Um, we have a paper called um, I'm in his belly. <laughs> it's a conference paper. And it, it you know, kids go, they jump into the characters. A lot of kids will like kind of reach out and try to touch things. They'll do a lot of like moving their arms. Kids will try to kick things. So they, they do flail, I think more than adults. So there is that, you know, potential that they will fall over. Okay. Okay. So, and, and fall over or not maybe is less of the point um, as kind of um, control their impulses, right? If, and, and that's what the VR does. It gives you these impulses that you want to respond to as if they're real. And so mm -hmm. the kids are less likely to remember or at least control that impulse with a, a response that re relies on the memory of being in a physical space wearing a headset. I'm not sure about the, the myth of remembering it or not. So I think in the sense of, yeah, realizing that this is different than what the physical world is. Yeah. It seems like it's the same. It seems like you can play by the same rules, but you can't mm -hmm. potentially. And so I'm interested in the future just to do more repeated exposures to see how that changes over time as they start to learn how to experience VR and um, what it means for them and how they're functioning in the world. Um, and so I think that's going to be an important factor in terms of them remembering the, the new rules that they're playing by. I can imagine two hypotheses, competing hypotheses here. On the one hand, you put adults in a new medium, you, whatever it is, at first they, they're like, whoa, this is super real. They're running out of the train station or, mm -hmm. or falling over in the virtual roller coaster, mm -hmm. whatever it is. But through repeated exposure, they learn um, just mm -hmm. like kids do. I would hypothesize that adults might learn faster because mm -hmm. we're more used to differentiating reality mm -hmm. from, from mediated experiences. Or uh -huh. I might hypothesize that adults learn slower because we're slow adults and kids do learn things faster than we do. I think you would lean more toward the, the first one because of the executive function. Yes, or? yeah, definitely the age. I think that there's that tipping point of a certain age where that is related to like cognitive flexibility, which is like, what are the rules? How do I flip back and forth? I would say it could be possible that kids learn things, new and interesting ways to interact with the environment than adults do. So adults might be like, okay, I know that when I'm in this type of space, I do this and that. And so then I can combine it to this. Um, and it might be, you know, like you said, it could be the fact that kids maybe are slower, but it's slower because they're pushing boundaries in a way that adults don't do it. So it's, they're doing things just that are way out there. Interesting. Um, so, yeah. so they're slower to differentiate reality from virtual experiences, but perhaps that's because they're more creative and it's not as important to them to differentiate or-, or um, Maybe it's not differentiating. They're just, it's, it's um, they might, depending on the child and the type of content, they're more, one thing that one takeaway is like VR is really great for discovery for kids. So it seems kids are very engaged in physically discovering things and interacting with things in a way that I think adults, I haven't necessarily seen. So for example, I've been doing the project I'm working on currently is just about different types of characters in VR and how kids experience them because there's just, you're interacting with things that you just wouldn't in your day-to-day -day life. And, you know, typically with adults and, you know, many adults I've seen like people and with kids, they'll respect the personal space 
of, of something, of, a, of an agent. And they won't necessarily walk through it, but you know, kids will reach out and try to touch it and they'll talk to it and try to figure it out. I think a lot more spontaneously, a lot faster than adults do. They'll just try to engage with what they're seeing to figure it out. And so they might not know exactly what's going on, but they'll be active and try to just discover things. This is interesting because this makes me think this contradicts once again. <laughs> I'm confused, I guess, about my expectations. Um, my assumption that kids are less likely to bring in assumptions about reality. So adults will follow the, the social norms, even mm -hmm. if it's a virtual character, even if we know mm -hmm. that they're not really there in front of us. Mm -hmm. But you're saying kids won't follow those social norms, maybe because kids don't follow social norms in general, <laughs> but, um, but probably to a lesser extent in VR, because they do recognize a difference from it being a real person. It could be, it could be that. It could also be the fact that they don't know what it is. So they're trying to like, this is how I know how to figure out something is. I hit it. I throw something at it. <laughs> I, I try to just figure out what's going on. That sounds like my kids figuring out <laughs> most things in our house. <laughs> exactly. That's how they, that's how they figure things out. They're like, uh, I'm not sure. So, and there's some nuances, nuances to that as well. So I, I, I'm looking at kind of how does that even relate to the different types of characters? So, you know, humans, they've seen humans, they know how to deal with humans. Animals, they have an idea of like him and wild animals. I learned about these, I understand them. But once you start to get into like creatures and fantasy things that they don't stand in front of, then the question is, you know, how comfortable are they? How do they interpret them? Do they understand what they are? And you'll see this, you know, I'm tying a lot of this work with kind of what people have done with social robots mm. and how they categorize them. And a lot of that work has shown that they'll come up with a new category, a new ontological cat, you know, an ontological understanding of things. So this is kids come up with the category. Yeah. Kids, people, okay, got it. So adults will ask them, you know, does this robot have a brain? And so kids will say, or can it think? And they'll say, no, or, you know, sort of, you know, if it has a brain, they'll say sort of, but not a brain like a person. Um, so you're like, oh, they've been around, you know, smart technologies enough that they're potentially coming up with these new ways of thinking about the world that many people who are older wouldn't necessarily have thought of like, yeah, it kind of has a brain, but it's a different type of brain. Yeah. So we're developing into new types of people because we have to think about the world and categorize the world in ways we might not necessarily have done before. There's more nuance to the media equation than there was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah, or it's an extension of it, suppose. Like, yeah, we treat it like social categories and then social beings, and then we categorize those social beings as different types of social beings. And that can inform how we transfer information, that can inform the decision-making that we make uh, beyond those mediated spaces. So the way that kids are approaching these virtual social beings might give us a glimpse into how society as a whole will treat them you know, when those of us who didn't grow up with those technologies are in, in the graves or, or wherever. <laughs> um, yeah, so it gives us a glimpse into the future, huh? Yeah, potentially. It's exciting. You know, every time I have my class, the first day of class um, for my course, Designing User Interfaces for Children, it's a lot about media and technology and kids. And I always start off with a list. And I say, by the time you're at the age of 10, have you raised your hand if you've been, had used or had exposure to the following technologies? So I'll be like, a telephone, 
a laptop, a desktop computer, um, the internet, <laughs> a laptop, a desktop computer, uh, yeah, and then like a, a tablet, a smartphone. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just wait and see until I get to the point where everyone's raised their hand for everything. And so then I can start adding, you know, VR, AR, you know, have you used, you know, any type of mixed reality experiences that you've had? Some of them have had, they like to reference, you know, amusement parks. So amusement parks have their own version of VR kind of experiences now. So yeah, yeah, it's changing. It is, it is. Gone are the days of the landline <laughs> uh, <laughs> and many other technologies. That's so interesting that you teach a designing user interfaces for children class. Yeah. Uh, so these are future, future designers or computer scientists mostly, or um, people. future designers, it's a master's uh, elective. And so it looks at designing and then thinking about, you know, when you design, you design for people. And so we think about kids, how are kids developing? And it has a bit of an educational bent to it. And so we learn a little bit about, you know, some design principles. They've taken some core courses before that. And we talk about, you know, how are kids developing? How are kids connecting to characters? How are kids, you know, socially developing? How are they, how do they, you know, attention? And so at the end, they come up with a design project where they have to think of an educational product or design. Mm -hmm. um, for kids that are 12 and under and they have to pick an age range within that and say why because not all kids within that age range will experience things the same way so all sorts of different platforms all sorts of different things I've seen um, students come up with it's pretty fun that's great it must inform your research very nicely too just to think about it from that kind of like fundamental level of psychological developmental differences mm -hmm. kids have mm -hmm. um do you find so so it's largely an age focus um but but then there's also i guess we're talking about cohort differences as well so do you find that you're sometimes comparing age and cohort as a as a variable in your research or or not yet yes yeah, so i use it as a continuous variable but um in the future potentially as a categorical variable but i always i always add that in there just to see how age relates to different factors because there's just some things that we just know for for example once i did they played simon says which is actually a measure that looks at inhibitory control so how how well are you able to suppress uh, oh, an impulse that's, that's a game that's not in squid game <laughs> <laughs> now that i think well, about it, it go can, on yeah but oh that makes a lot of sense yeah executive function impulse suppression yeah and so you know as kids get older they get better at it so i you know i included that as a as a covariate but still found out even with that involved kids just had a harder time not imitating the character in vr than they did you know via television and so there's something Salient about that, yeah. So something salient about that experience that's a little bit, a little bit different. That's such but, a great. That's like an amazing archetypal example. <laughs> yeah. Simon says is harder uh, in VR um, than on TV for kids and adults. You think, or you just looked at kids? I just looked at kids. Um, but one thing that's really fun and neat about that project, which is possible, is you can I can crank up the speed. I can make it more easier, harder for adults than, than kids. And so I would probably make it, you know, you'd want to make it to some level a challenging game for adults. <laughs> sure. Because right now it's at, it's at a pace that's 
after a lot of testing, is that an appropriate, it's made at an appropriate pace for that Absolutely. age. Absolutely. <laughs> you want like 30% errors, regardless of your group, right? So there's two ways you measure and categorize it. So there's the Simon says, do this. And there's the Simon says, don't do this. And so you have to actually look at the Simon says one where they imitate them. And to make sure that they understand, they have to hit a step, hit 70% of being able to do it correctly. Um, so that's, okay. that's the one you look at. Um, so yeah, you have to make sure they, you know, because mimicking is easy to do. And sometimes kids don't actually do it. Because again, they're like paying attention to something else, or maybe they don't understand the rules of the game. So that's actually what you have to look at to make sure that they're doing it properly. <laughs> Interesting. Are there any other studies like that, that kind of provide a very clear comparison um, between VR and other tech or, or kids and adults that you've run? I would say there's probably, I've seen more studies with kids and adults, probably like teens and adults. Um, and I think more on the social aspect of things, that was a very kind of, I guess, cognitive focused one there. There's some, there were some social aspects of it too. Um, I don't know in that way. I think people are more and more people are doing it now. I've definitely seen a lot more stuff with that, especially with like the social aspect of it. Sure. But not that much in that age range. Okay. okay. Um, but, but you'll um, see a lot. But for pain, okay, actually, let me take that back. Pain distraction, there's a lot of studies with that. Comparing VR and like yeah, other, you know, television or other types of um, tools that they use. And we know that it is really a really good pain distraction tool for kids and even, and even adults too. Absolutely. And I, and that maybe that goes back to your previous comment slash question. And it's like, why is it so, why does it work so well? Um, you know, they're, they're there, they're in there. They just get absorbed. And maybe that's going back to that behavior and emotion regulation there. It's just, they, they're, they have the tendency of being very open to the content. Interesting. Yeah. Hello, listener. It's me but I'm an avatar. You probably learn about avatars in this podcast, but you can actually try them out, not just in video games, but in spaces like Zoom. I'm using Zoom to record this right now. This avatar I created with Ready Player Me. Remember in episode a long time ago, I talked to Timo Toke, the CEO of Wolf 3D. That's the company that makes Ready Player Me. I took a screenshot of myself with my camera, a selfie, I should say, and I created an avatar automatically, customized it in their app. Then I posted it in Animaze. That's the software I'm using right now. They are the sponsor of this message and they are giving a 50% discount on subscriptions. You can try it for free, but if you want to subscribe, you enter Sparty Lab as the discount code. That's S-P-A-R-T-I-E Lab. So you can use a Ready Player Me avatar, like I mentioned. You can also upload your own VRM or live 2D models, or you can make avatars right in animes. For example, you could use the Doge avatar. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I mean, it might have seemed like like a, a strange thing at first, but but Dogecoin is is still making bucks. Um, but you could use the Doge avatar or one of their very cool anthropomorphic animals, such as the Fluffo, the raccoon, totally detailed. Look at this. It's so responsive. People use these types of avatars to stream or 
go to Zoom meetings or go to, go to court cases and say, I am not a cat. There are also two-dimensional avatars like this raccoon or more anthropomorphic avatars that aren't even animals like this cute pandemic virus right here. Corey, Corey the COVID. Maybe this one won't win you too many friends. I really like Kathy. She's quite a catch. You could choose whichever avatar you like. And then you could even apply some of the concepts like the Proteus effect or other phenomena related to avatars in the workplace to your uses of these avatars uh, based on what you've learned in this podcast. And once again, if you want to try it out, go to Steam, download Animes, try it for free. And then if you want a subscription, you can get 50% off for a limited time by entering Sparty Lab in the discount code. Check it out. What about education? Let's talk about Ready Player One's kind of utopian, dystopian future uh, <laughs> in which, you know, everyone mm -hmm. has access to a high quality free education as long as they mm -hmm. can get into the metaverse, the Oasis, you know, the mm -hmm. VR university, um, mm -hmm. Coursera.vr or whatever it's going to be <laughs> 10, 20 years from now. I, I, I don't want to ask you a simple question like pros and cons, but... Um, but is there some way you can characterize the range of designs that people might implement um, that might be better or worse for, for youth development, for society, that kind of thing? It's very, it's really interesting to talk about this now because in a way kids have been living in their two-dimensional oasis the past year and a half, two years because of COVID. It's Zoom, it's their Zoom oasis. And so they've been meeting their classmates and their teachers via Zoom and, and, you know, because they can't leave. And that's basically what happens in the book where, you know, he's living, his living situation is where, and like the world is so crowded, you can't go out in the world. But here, you know, kids couldn't go out in the world because, you know, people were afraid of, you know, getting sick, rightly so. And so they have their own Zoom oasis. And I think one of the things that, you know, a lot of universities, a lot of people saw in the beginning was when it was very open, people would Zoom bomb. And that was a concern of having outside people having access. And I think that's gonna be an, just a very important thing. You know, virtual worlds in a way can be very open, but you wanna have a, a virtual fence to a degree of people being able to participate. How they're represented, do you know who people are? Cause I can put an avatar and you won't know who I am. How are we gonna be identifying someone and their intentions? That's a traditional online, you know, issue, and that's going to continue on in VR. Um, another thing is just thinking about the degrees that someone can represent themselves in their identity and having the flexibility and the scale to do that will be really important. And thinking about the ways that are important to do that. Uh, is it behaviors? Is it the, the appearance? And for a long time, you know, in the VR world, in the sci-fi world, we saw one population that really dominated the space, you know, typically white men, 30 to 40 years of age. And so I think it's really, you know, important that we expand that and uh, have people be able to rep be represented in that way and have the content be able, you know, maybe kids make more content, teens make more content. They're more involved with that, that ability to do that. And then one thing this comes up with this, as much as I like VR and I think it's an awesome way to experience the world, one recommendation I would say is you don't have to put people in a classroom with chairs. 
<laughs> and I think people sometimes I think people don't you know who aren't as familiar tend to just like recreate what we have here I'm like we can do so many things with sound and touch and sight um that you can transform learning supplement learning you know there's some situations where it's good to sit in one place have limited distraction focus on something and then there's another place in time and place for discovery and interaction and exploration that can supplement learning interesting yeah absolutely and vr so well it's it's so flexible right so it's mm -hmm. it's well suited for things besides sitting in chairs i mean we could sit around and like sit in our physical chairs in a virtual chair and, and watch a presentation um, but that's not taking advantage of the medium's potential have you done anything on um avatar choice amongst children I have not, but I'm very curious. Maybe we could do something with that. Yeah. Because um, one thing I do, which I think is so fun and interesting, kids notice when they can't see their body and they will comment on it. Maybe adults notice they just don't say anything, um, but kids will like look down because we haven't given anyone an avatar. So kids will look down, you know, we've had a couple kids say things like, um, I'm a ghost. Or I can't see where's I'm invisible. Where's my body? Um, so clearly, bodies are important to them, and they recognize them, and they expect to see themselves. And so, interesting. You know, I I'd be curious to see you know how they select with they select. What is it? How do they interact when they don't have one compared to when they do have one? Yeah. You know, how are their personal individual backgrounds influence that? Their previous yeah, experiences yeah. with technology. I wonder also if they would choose to be kids, or I mean, I guess it depends on the age, or do they want to be older? Ooh. Um, and will they replicate some of the kind of stereotypes and and mm. like what you see online um, uh, as the majority? Or I, I I really love your idea of um, more co content creation. Mm -hmm. I think you know, for better or worse. That, Facebook does plan to create many content creation platforms that people can make money off of their mm -hmm. products, uh, which mm -hmm. is which is a good thing. And and related to that, okay, tell me what you think about this idea. I've I've been <laughs> touting it for so long. I don't know if anybody's actually going to study it um, or build it. But in the the metaverse, the interoperable set of virtual worlds where you own your digital goods. And mm -hmm. through blockchain technology, you can kind of bring them with you from space to space. You can bring your avatars, of mm -hmm. course. So I buy an mm -hmm. avatar over here. I bring it over to this mm -hmm. other world. Um, great, fine. The, there's an easy way to pass that technology through, just like I can pass through a JPEG file. Um, mm -hmm. But what if I can also pass through a reputation marker, mm -hmm. like, uh, like my credential? In the same way as I mm -hmm. log into you know, Google or Facebook, mm -hmm. maybe use it on different websites. Mm -hmm. But now it's an actual, like, it could show up as a badge or not, but it lets me into places. It lets me into the classroom. So um, I won't be a Zoom bomber. I'm unlikely to be a Zoom bomber. And if I am, then, you know, it costs someone money because they have to go buy another reputation badge and work mm. it up to the level where they're allowed to get there. So by kind of implementing incentives into our um, fencing, our kind of digital fencing, as you said, mm -hmm. we can address the, the toxicity issue. What do you think? Mm -hmm. I think it's very fascinating. I think, yeah, I, I like having a tag, like a little visitor's a reputation yeah. token. Actually, I have a game where right? there's reputation tokens in it, a board game. <laughs> but I think that's very fascinating. 
to me, the biggest thing is the people in charge of designing and deciding what counts as positive and negative reputation and how to, to update things really quickly. Because you I gotta think look to game companies for that. Go on, go on. Yeah, because I think like, for example, when you go to a school, you have to have a visitor pass. And so that makes complete sense that if you violate that, you there's a ding and then it limits you possibly from interacting people or maybe you just get completely blurred out and people just can't hear or see you. Uh, you know, I think that's really, really interesting. I would just, my only concern is like who, if there's like a rating in there that random people can rate you, that always scares me a little bit. Because I think yeah. about like, dating apps and one of the biggest concerns was like desirability and it was like reflecting negative things that were happening in in society where I think it was something where it was like black women and Asian men did did the worst on like dating it's like they just couldn't get matches and it's just like one of those things of like reflecting back issues in society someone was like who's going to do the rating how are we going to do it so maybe it's not a rating but you're saying it's a violation it's like you get a mark. Like someone can say, you did this bad thing. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or you did this amazing thing. You're awesome. You helped me. Absolutely. Game companies have been uh, trying to gate those systems in ways that make, make them a little more nuanced than like everyone can rate everyone. Um, but I don't know. I have not actually seen a very successful model. I like community involvement in tribunals where they go over. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's probably just our robot overlords, the AI, <laughs> that are just going to have to like track everything and make those judgments for us. That's true. But I do like the idea of like, you did something that I didn't like. And I think that's, I think there's something about that that's profound in a way that in some ways would be nice to have in the physical world, but it could be, and then you have to write some note or something, but maybe you could do it anonymously. Yeah. I don't know. I think we'll have it in the physical world once we're wearing these AR glasses and walking around and then we have our badges and then it gets gamified to be a good citizen and you're not yeah. allowed to say anything bad about the government and it's oh, the yeah. end of democracy as we know. Okay, it. okay. I like the good citizen, like you helped walk my virtual dog kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, but- you, re- you recycle, you, you have less energy in your house. Uh, yeah. you, you did not um, post negative things about our, our supreme leader. <laughs> Oh, Jackie, this is so interesting. So um, yeah, we've taken a, a lot of your time. Thank you so much. La- last question though, imagining that that virtual education experience and knowing what you know about how kids interact in these media, in what ways can we make virtual education better than physical education? You talked about that kind of sensorial uh, potential of VR. Can you either elaborate on that or is there another way that you could think about making augmenting? the benefit of education? I think discovery is a really, and risk, positive risk-taking. I think VR is really great for that um, because I think particularly when you start getting into adolescence and you're really sensitive to social cues and exclusion, and maybe there's a way that you can use VR to make mistakes and take risks in a positive way and teaching kids how to do positive risk-taking without having a lot of negative consequences um, giving them a chance to just be, just, you know, discoverers, be creative, creative problem solving, you know, being able to apply some of the concepts that they've learned in a, a, a more embodied way, which in a way gives them, you know, agency over their education. So they can, you know, they get the lesson, but maybe they can 
you know, in an open, a somewhat open space, they can do things that are unexpected. Oh, interesting. So unlike a game that's designed to like teach you typing, right? Like in VR, it can be more of a, like you experience, I don't know, a historical event and your task is to tell the story of that event. Um, and you can build some objects and make a mm-hmm. presentation instead of putting pictures on a PowerPoint slide. Uh, mm-hmm. You're bringing your classmates into this quasi-artistic kind of understanding of a historical event. And I use history mm-hmm. just as a random case, but that could be in any field in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, history is a great one. It's a great example. Um, one of my other classes, virtual environment, students come up with an idea for an application and they build a demo. Mm-hmm. One was teaching about the history of, of, of buildings. And so they basically had a modern restaurant, which is supposed to represent this other kind of bar in the Austin area that's, that's very historical, very famous. They, their demo was taking a building um, in current times, and then you would travel back in time to the same building and see it in the 20s. And so they... <laughs> cool. Yeah, so it's really fun. So it's kind of it was, and it was really cool how they did it. You felt like you're going through the matrix a little bit, and then you, and then you arrive in the same building, um, but it, it's now the 20s version of it. And so I think it's kind of an interesting way. I would love to see someone build something that would be like every, like the time travelers breaking the time travelers rules. Like, what if you went back and moved something? change the course of history and <laughs> the consequences of that and saying like when people make decisions there's consequences of that um you know interesting you know, interesting That's- don't mess with the timeline i want to mess with the timeline and see see what happens <laughs> maybe that's the simulation we're living in right now it's just some <gasps> higher intelligence messing with some timeline to see what happens you know what? i'm gonna go with that i was watching the flash and say someone ran back in time and and change something and mess with the timeline. <laughs> and that's why this is where we are. <laughs> well, we we've had we have a great timeline here of this discussion, um, yes. Jackie. And your interest in doing an avatar attitudes and kids project uh, with me is is not lost. I I I would love to pursue that if you're open to it. Oh yeah. Awesome, awesome. I will send you an email. <laughs> but thank you so much for being here. Thanks to the listeners. If you're interested in kids and VR and want to learn more, um, we'll send you to Jackie's webpage uh, at UT Austin, as well as do you have like a lab site or, or Twitter or anything you want to plug? I do. I have a personal website, JackieBailey.com. I have a lab website, which is um, immersivehuman.ischool.edu. And you can also follow us on Instagram, immersivehuman. <laughs> Jackie, this has been great. I hope we can uh, hang out in the metaverse in, in the, the 2D oasis uh, more in the future. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of SpartyCast. I hope it brought out your inner child in some way, thinking about, I don't know, it, it, uh, infringing on the personal space of an avatar in front of you or joyfully throwing throwing your arms up in the air and, and frolicking in a virtual world or the excitement ar- ar- around 
being part of the history lesson or the chemistry lesson, um, whatever it is, being immersed in it, potentially learning more, focusing more on the application instead of the memorization of the stuff that we learn in school. Um, I think there's great potential in this technology for children. I think Dr. Bailey is doing an amazing job with her research. And so it's a great honor to have her on SpartyCast. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Tay, Kyle, and Mia for being part of the SpartyCast team. No, Tay's leaving. <laughs> Uh, don't feel guilty, Tay. Don't feel guilty. I, I I will joke about it from now until the time that you're gone. But thank you for producing the podcast. And thanks, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for tuning into SpartyCast. Goodbye, world.